Uh, happy Sabbath to you all, and warm greetings to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. You'll be hearing the sermon later on. Happy Sabbath to you all. Thank you, Mr. McCullough, for that uh, beautiful music. It sounded like there were birds chirping in the music, piano solo, of Bring Back the Springtime. We have 209 in attendance today, and we do welcome all our guests here. Uh, last Sabbath, it began to snow just before, you know, just before we left services, about an hour after services. Uh, my wife and I uh, went along Route 51 on our way home, but congested traffic. We had to turn back and go another way. And we had about two or three inches around here last uh, week, and I'm sure our children really enjoyed last weekend. Kansas City this Thursday had a record snowfall of 9.2 inches, a record for February 21st. Uh, the previous record was 5.1 inches in Kansas City for that particular date. Uh, some communities around Kansas City have had a foot of snow or more. So we pray that our Kansas City brethren will be able to get to Sabbath services today. Uh, we just really enjoyed the snow, and uh, when we looked at the trees, we just realized uh, God is the greatest artist when you saw the snow on the trees and bushes last week. The word snow appears in the Bible 23 times. In the Transfiguration on the Mount in Mark, the ninth chapter, it said that Jesus appeared, his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, so as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Another reference to uh, snow is Jesus' appearance in Revelation 1 and verse 10. It said, his head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow and his eyes as a flame of fire. Turn to Psalm 51, and we'll find another reference here to snow that will apply to us as we think about the Passover coming up. Psalm 51, and I hope all of you seriously meditate on Psalm 51 as we prepare for the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. In his Psalm of Repentance, Ancient King David remarked that our sin-stained life can be clean and pure as snow. Psalm 51 and verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And of course, on this fast day, I hope that we've been confessing our sins, examining ourselves, and looking forward to the time when we will take the Passover and commemorate the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for our sins. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Well, we can all rejoice that we are can be whiter than snow, spiritually speaking, that our sins have been wiped clean from the record and that we can have Again, that renewal of faith, and we can walk in faith. As it says in 1 John 1, verse 7, if we have fellowship one with another, the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord cleanses us from all sin. So that's in, it happened at baptism. We were all cleansed from sin. The death penalty was paid for us, but every once in a while we still sin. And the blood of Christ still cleanses us from all sin. 
1 John 1, verse 7. Today we're fasting to humble ourselves before God. And one of the biggest lessons that we need to learn in life is humility. Not only is humility a lifelong lesson, but it must become a part of our eternal spiritual character. The title of the sermon today is Fasting and Humility. When all of us, as the body of Christ, humble ourselves as a family, and as the ecclesia, the church of God, the body of Christ, the called out ones, Christ can use us more effectively as his servants to finish the work. But what is the purpose of the fast today? You heard it in the announcement that's in our church bulletin. One way of stating it was Dr. Meredith's comments. I ask that all of our ministers and elders and leaders of various little groups around the world show complete fidelity and join with us in leading your brethren to fast and seek God's help beginning Friday evening at sunset and ending Saturday evening at sunset on February 22nd and the 23rd. And in this week's bulletin, as Mr. Lee read, and I hope that you read through that again from the presiding evangelist, as Passover approaches, we certainly do need to draw very close to God, examine ourselves, and be sure that we are in the very center of God's will as best we can. So how can we be sure that we are truly in the very center of God's will? Of course, we need to know what God's will is, and we need to examine ourselves if we've heard. And I know you may feel that you've heard it enough, but no, let's uh, re- repetition is one of the forms of emphasis. Second Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verse 5. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you have already at least attempted to examine yourself? Second Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Very meaningful and deep statement. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. We can just stop right there and wonder, what is the faith? Well, the faith is the true faith that God reveals through the Bible. It's been taught by God's church over the decades, and it's revealed faith. We have our own faith, we have Christ's faith, and then there is a body of faith. We have to see, are we in that body? Are we in the faith? Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves? Again, another section to meditate on. Do you know yourselves? What your habits are, what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are, what your routines are, what mistakes you generally make. It comes to mind when I mention that of the Effective Executive uh, book. And uh, he says, now, if you have a crisis, you need to understand how the crisis came about set aside a routine so that that never happens again. We learn lessons. Do we know ourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Then the most profound element of all, that Christ is in you. And how do you know whether Christ is in you or not? Well, he tells us in 1 John that if you have God's Spirit, He abides in you and you abide in Him. But you need to make sure that Christ is in you. It's referred to as the mystery of the gospel back in Colossians 1 and verse 27. Is Christ in you unless indeed you are disqualified 
but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So the Apostle Paul was challenging the Corinthian church and us today to examine ourselves. It takes a great deal of courage to do that. What facets should we consider in examining ourselves? On January 26, Dr. Meredith's sermon, Who Will God Protect?, he challenged us to examine ourselves in four major areas of our lives. I won't ask you to raise your hands to see how many of you, as a teacher, I always like to give quizzes, how many of you know all four areas of self-examination that he gave in that sermon. Number one was Sabbath observance, where some of our brethren are not really fearing God and not really striving to be in the center of God's will and to keep the Sabbath with joy and happiness. God's Sabbath is a delight to learn more about the creation, to see the stars at night, to see the birds and walk in the forest, to learn new hymns and to teach your children. Sabbath observance can be a lot delight. Tithes and offerings was the second area. And, of course, uh, I've mentioned before that some people say, well, I don't have an income. I'm, you know, I'm on welfare or whatever. But he said, you've robbed me, even this whole nation, in tithes and offerings. So even if you don't have an income upon which to tithe, God still expects offerings. And I encourage people, every time you get a coworker letter, to send something in, something special, even a dollar. Why? It's not the dollar that's important. What is as important is the responsiveness to God's church, to his leadership, and to Christ himself. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. That's John 10, verse 37. And they follow me. So responsiveness is a part of what we need to be learning as the body of Christ and as members of his body. The third area he discussed was judging and condemning and how easy that is to do. We just we know everyone's faults. Uh, we can see them so clearly. But here's this huge beam in our own eye. We just can't. We're going to get that little speck out of someone else's eye, but we've got this huge stick, this huge beam in our eye, and we can't even see it. We have to be careful about judging and condemning and examine ourselves with respect to those weaknesses. Number four, Dr. Meredith brought out in that sermon, was respect for the ministry and remaining humble. And, of course, God says that we need to obey those who are the leaders. I remember one time when... One minister was kind of anti-church government, and he was reading that section. I'll just turn back to it, to Hebrews 13, verse 7. And he was saying, well, it doesn't say that they are the, that you have to obey the ministers. It just says those who are the guides. Let me just read that here first. Come to mind here. I didn't plan on this, but Hebrews 13. And... Verse 7, remember those who have the rule over you. Oh, the, oh, they don't have the rule over you. That just means that they are the leaders. Uh, verse 13, um, verse 17. But it says, obey those who have the rule over you or are the leaders and be submissive. So they watch for your souls as those that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, anti-government attitudes are not going to be in the kingdom. As he says, that would be unprofitable for you. So we need that attitude of responsiveness and service and examine ourselves whether we are disrespecting those in government, 
Those who are in the ministry are showing respect and having the attitude of responsiveness and service. What other areas should we examine ourselves in? And I've uh, done this very quickly in my mind, but perhaps uh, I need to do it even more slowly. But in last week's sermon on Passover preparation, uh, Dr. Meredith gave us another area of self-examination. Each of the Ten Commandments, one by one. You shall have no other gods before me. And, of course, people have gods of the heart, different idols. It may be possessions. It may be uh, self-exaltation. Uh, it may be uh, p- uh, position or pride. We have to examine ourselves. What are our idols? And even John said that at the end of First John, very last verse, little children, keep yourself from idols. I shouldn't... Uh, Digress, but uh, reminds me, uh, since many of you are going to Israel, some of you. How many of you are going to Israel for the feast? Oh, good. Two, four, six. Looks about six from this congregation. Uh, But when we were over there taping a television program on uh, walking in the steps of Jesus, and that was in 1992, we were in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which basically has the rock uh, where supposedly Jesus was crucified. We had just gone up there, and uh, they have, of course, all kinds of paraphernalia and lant- lanterns and candles and crystal. And, and this hippie couple from San Francisco, we, our television crew had come down. We were down on the first floor, and we heard this crashing of uh, crystal and uh, this voice ringing out, Little children, keep yourself from idols. And this hippie was saying that. All of a sudden, the doors closed, and all of the church security uh, got this hippie couple, a a young man and a a girl, um, and arrested them. But uh, he wasn't too far off base in saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. That was, of course, the last verse in 1 John. So we do need to examine ourselves with respect to the Ten Commandments, and not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, which is so important. So these are a few ways we can determine to what degree we are in the center of God's will. And when we do that, we will conclude that we need God's grace. When we examine ourselves, if you don't see any flaws, then uh, you must be an angel unawares, and I'm sure uh, there are, you're totally blind uh, spiritually. But if you've found, if you've examined yourself, you will conclude that you need God's forgiveness. And you will conclude that you need to take the Passover to commemorate the death of our Savior Passover night. We observe the anniversary of Christ's death and sacrifice at the Passover every year. And we thank the teenagers who are not baptized but who are able to serve and do babysitting and help out in that way. But the Passover is for baptized members, and it's just four weeks from tomorrow night, Sunday night, March 24th, 2013. And we all look forward to that night, remembering the awesome sacrifice of our Savior, the Lamb of God, who paid for the sins of the world and for our own personal sins. As we fast today, let's take a look at a couple historic examples of fasting and the meaning of fasting and the benefits of fasting. As Mr. League said in the announcement, he's, he's joyous today, and 
I hope that all of you have seen already uh, so far this day in fasting some benefits of fasting. Let's turn to 1 Kings, the 21st chapter. I won't uh, take too much time with the whole story. It's a fascinating story. In fact, my very first word study on fasting brought me to uh, the story of wicked King Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. You know, Naboth had a vineyard next to the king's palace. And the king wanted it, and Naboth refused to give it to him. He said, I can't give my uh, inheritance away to you. And Jezebel, of course, really got King Ahab stirred up. And Jezebel said, what's, what's the matter, king? He was like a crying baby, uh, you know, very uh, selfish, and uh, was lying down. And uh, Jezebel, don't worry, king, I can get it for you. Oh, Jezebel stirred up uh, King Ahab, and she got some false witnesses. And they stoned Naboth, put him to death, and the king took over Naboth's vineyard. Very wicked. And Jezebel, of course, was the one who incited him and worked it out for him. So Elijah comes to pronounce the death penalty on him. 1 Kings 21 and verse 25. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So he had behaved, verse 26, very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. But back in verse 17, the Eternal told Elijah to go and meet Ahab, who lives down in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. He has gone down to take possession. Verse 19, You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Eternal, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Eternal, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Well, here's one of the most wicked kings of Israel. And Elijah pronounced the death penalty on him. What did Ahab do? How did he respond? Verse 27, So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. So he responded, but what does it say in verse 28? What did God say about this wicked king fasting? Verse 28, and the word of the eternal came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, verse 29, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. So here, if a wicked king had humbled himself through fasting and God showed mercy to him, how much more will he show his children, God's begotten children, the body of Christ, mercy if we humble ourselves? One of the purposes of fasting is to humble ourselves before God. There are other historic occasions. There are many in the Bible, but let's take a look at uh, another one. Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter. Second Chronicles 20. Here, Judah and Jerusalem were threatened by Moab and Ammon and Mount Seir. And Jehoshaphat, who was uh, the leader at the time, proclaimed a fast. Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter. Let's uh, read verse... Three, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Eternal 
and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask for help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So what happened? Here they were going to be surrounded by these enemies. Uh, they felt helpless. How did they fight the battle? They fasted. How did God help them? Verse 20. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. As they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the eternal your God, and you shall be established. Believe as prophets, and you shall prosper. Of course, that's a general principle, but applied to this particular case. What they had done, what uh, Jehoshaphat had done, was to not put the army out in front of everyone, but the Charlotte Corral. They were the singers. Read that in verse 19. The Levites and the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Kohathites stood up to praise the eternal God of Israel, voices loud and high. So it wasn't the army, it was the singers went out. And so as you rehearse uh, this afternoon, you can think about that, the Charlotte Choir, that in future wars we're going to send you out in front of the church. But what happened? Uh, verse 22. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Eternal set ambushments against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. So the singers were the ones who went out before, and God found uh, found these enemies to be, uh, or worked it out, so they fought against each other. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Verse 24, So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were dead, their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one escaped. Again, God helped his people because they humbled themselves through fasting and a great victory. So when God's people humble themselves through fasting, God will intervene. And we need to pray for God's intervention, as you heard in the announcements. And in this world, uh, in the week's uh, weekly bulletin, we have the World Ahead comments by Dr. Meredith about the problems that we're facing, including the prince of the power of air, he said, is striking directly at the major center of our media efforts and the work. So we need to seek God, Dr. Meredith writes, we need to seek God our Father in heaven and ask him to intervene to fight our battles. So God gave a great victory to Judah and Jerusalem under King Jehoshaphat, and he will give us, brethren, great victories as we genuinely seek him and humble ourselves before him. While we're here in Second Chronicles, uh, even though it is not, I'll just give you a, a bonus section here. Turn back to uh, chapter 7. Actually, we had a sermon on this at one time, and it is one of God's promises. Second Chronicles, the seventh chapter. It actually was a popular uh, Christian song uh, that I was hearing on the radio some years ago. If my people, he says in Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So that was uh, sermon number 270. I don't have the exact sermon title for that, but it was, If my people who are called by my name will pray, and I hope that all of us are doing that. I'm sure that we are. That's sermon number 235, titled, If my people will humble themselves. Now, fasting and prayer go together. We have on our websites, in the Tomorrow's World website, the COGL.org and the Living Church of God websites, a commentary uploaded this morning by Dr. Meredith titled, By Prayer and Fasting. I'm just uh, curious as to how many of you have even uh, seen that on the website this morning. Have any of you seen that? Okay, well, I know that uh, you probably didn't spend too much time on the computer today. Uh, but if you get a chance, I encourage you to read <clears throat> Dr. Meredith's commentary on prayer and fasting because they're connected. Prayer and fasting are, go together, he writes. <clears throat> there was a time when the prophet Daniel really desperately wanted to know what would happen in the future. And he quotes Daniel 9, verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. As he writes, prayer always goes along with fasting. Notice Dr. Meredith writes, he did not say, oh, we've been good and we've done no wrong and you don't have anything, any right to punish us. Rather, he told God that as Daniel told God, he was sorry. And that, quote, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. That's verses 5 and 7 from Daniel 9. Prayer and fasting are the center of a true Christian's life. You can read the whole commentary on our website sometime today. He concludes that commentary by quoting James, the fourth chapter, which I had in my notes anyway, so let's turn back to James, the fourth chapter. James 4. We'll, uh, James, Peter, John. James, the fourth chapter, and verse 9. We'll come back to this later, but connecting up with the concept of fasting and prayer. Verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. He concludes the commentary by saying, Brethren, that is God's promise to us. We must humble ourselves and must not let down in the matter of prayer and fasting. We've looked at a couple historic occasions of fasting. Let's take a look at another one, and one uh, what one comes to your mind. You think of all historic examples in the Bible of fasting. Well, Esther is certainly one in which Mordecai, or Esther told Mordecai, you know, fast for me three days, and we will, uh, you know, for my maids and I will fast, and uh, Mordecai was to fast as well. Turn back to the book of Esther. We can find it. 
Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Here it is, for those of you having difficulty, it's page 675, my Bible here. Esther, the third chapter. You know the story, and we won't take too much time, but wicked Haman had uh, got ingratiated himself to the king and had a decree written that on a certain date that was uh, determined by throwing dice or lots, which the word was poor, P-U-R, from which comes the, the feast day Purim. We'll talk about that in a minute. But notice Esther 3 and verse 13. And the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their possessions. You know what today is? The 13th of Adar. Supposing you were a Jew in Persia, of course, modern Iran, as it is today. I remember in a bank, in, uh, I think it was Wells Fargo Bank in Pasadena one time, I went in to do some banking and uh, had to talk with one of the agents. And she had a little accent. I said, where are you from? She says, Persia. She was not going to say Iran. She was going to say Persia. But supposing you were a Jew, and this is the 13th of Adar. Of course, this was set in advance. They had some months in advance to uh, pray and ask God's uh, intervention. So chapter 4 and verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Well, just the previous verse, and I hope that's a very important verse. Esther 14, the end of the verse. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, God has called us to come to the kingdom at such a time as this, to be a warning voice, to tell people their transgressions, and to feed the flock, and to prepare the church and the world for the coming kingdom of God. You, brethren, and I have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In Esther's case, It was for her intercession to plead for the lives of all the Jews in Persia. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She was willing to lay down her life. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Turn to chapter 9. Chapter 9. As you know, read through the whole book. This would be a good time, actually, to read through the book of Esther. Chapter 9 and verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things. This was after... Uh, Mordecai was given uh, grace and favor because of Esther's intercession. And uh, the king was able to write another decree for the Jews to protect themselves on the 13th of Adar. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly 
the fourteenth and fifteenth days of the month of Adar, as these days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them. So the Jews to this day celebrate Purim. And that is, of course, the 13th of Adar today. Now, normally what the Jews would do on the 13th of Adar is have a special or partial fast uh, in memory of Esther's uh, three days and three nights fast and of the Jews' fast of that particular period of time. But since today is a weekly Sabbath, the Jews have moved it back to last Thursday, the 11th of Adar, and they have a partial fast, three hours before sunrise to 40 minutes after sunset this past Thursday, which is about 15 hours of fasting. Normally they would do it on the 13th, but because of the Sabbath they did it on uh, Thursday. So what they do then is to commemorate the, the day of prayer and fasting that the Jews held before their victory. So we fast on the day before Purim, from approximately three hours before sunrise until 40 minutes after sunset in the event that the day before Purim is on uh, Sabbath, uh, we fast on the previous Thursday. So they celebrated. Starting tonight, the Jews will celebrate Purim, a time of joy. I wonder, it's an interesting coincidence, is it? You know, could it be that God is giving us Deliverance from Satan's attack and giving us encouragement as the Israel of God, the spiritual Israel. Of course, we need to do our part in humbling ourselves and examining ourselves. God has historically intervened for his people when they humble themselves before him. Now, he brings up another question. Is it wrong to fast on the weekly Sabbath. The Jews felt that it wouldn't be appropriate for them to fast today, even though they normally would fast on the 13th of Adar. I had a person challenge me in that question. In fact, some are questioning the church fast today. Why should Dr. Meredith do this? The critics are always criticizing, and it would have been more helpful for the critic to have been fasting today rather than criticizing those who are humbling themselves today. One uh, person wrote me years ago and said, well, it was uh, actually, we had a church fast. This was about uh, almost 10 years ago. And the person was saying, well, why did Dr. Meredith call a fast on, on the Sabbath? Mr. Armstrong didn't do that. And besides, the Sabbath is a feast day, so why should we be fasting on a feast day? So how would you answer that question? Well, first of all, uh, the, the Day of Atonement is a feast day, and we fast on that. And I had to write this letter, lady, and oh, sorry, I didn't mention the gender, but I had to write this person uh, that, you know, this coming few months away on the Day of Atonement, it falls on a weekly Sabbath. So since you don't want to fast on the weekly Sabbath, are you going to disobey God and not fast on a weekly Sabbath when the Day of Atonement falls on it? And guess what? Day of Atonement in 2013 falls on a weekly Sabbath. 2014 falls on a weekly Sabbath. 2017 
the Day of Atonement also falls on a weekly Sabbath. And I did some research and found out, of course, that uh, Mr. Armstrong really had uh, called several fasts on uh, April 4th, 1970, um, June 10th, 1972, May 21st, 1977, uh, June 24th, 1978, and I'll just read the one that he called for um, in 1979, Mr. Armstrong wrote in his co-worker letter of January 18th, 1975, 1979, quote, I call now a special day of fasting and prayer, not only for the work and the church, but also for our own selves that we may be brought closer to God on Sabbath, January 27th, world worldwide. So Mr. Armstrong and the church has traditionally kept a fast on the weekly Sabbath. I wrote this person and said, please consider the examples of Moses, Elijah, and your Savior when they fasted 40 days. 40 days would include at least five weekly Sabbaths. So it's sad that some critics today uh, want to take the position of judge and jury when they themselves should be humbling themselves. Dr. Meredith wrote in Thursday's World Ahead message, which is in our church-built bulletin, Dear brethren and friends, thank you for your enthusiastic response so many of you have shown for our coming church fast. So what is our purpose? Just as Mr. Armstrong wrote, as Dr. Meredith has said, that we may be brought closer to God. Turn to James, the uh, fourth chapter. James 4, uh, we just actually read that uh, particular section, but I want to bring out, emphasize another point. James 4, as we humble ourselves, he says in verse 6, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then verses 7 and 8 give what Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to call the two initiatives. You know, God does things for us, but he says there is something we must do for ourselves. And the two initiatives are as follows. Verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One of the initiatives is resist the devil. And the other one, verse 8, is draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I've claimed that promise many times. I've not felt close enough to God. I said, Father, I'm drawing close to you. You promised to draw close to me. And here's the promise right here in James 4, verse 8. But he continues, as we examine ourselves, cleanse your hands, you sinners. No, we need to use our hands for good, not for evil. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. We go back and forth. Well, we... Uh, Consider the temptation. Well, we shouldn't give in to the temptation. No, let's give. Well, it's so appealing. I need to think it's double-minded. We go back and forth, and there's not that full commitment that we heard about last week, in this, both in the sermonette and the sermon. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so we're fasting with that purpose in mind. Humility cures worldliness is the subhead in some of the King James Bibles. Well, let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I've uh, 
believe I've shared this with you in the past couple sermons, but to me it's a very powerful promise of God to help us in times of trouble, realize our own responsibilities, and yet with Christ in us, with the power that God gives us, we can overcome. And we'll be learning those principles and reviewing those lessons during the days of unleavened bread. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, the Protestants wouldn't like that. It'd be just the word work. Work out your own salvation? Well, it says how? With fear and trembling, with an attitude of humility an attitude of responsiveness, an attitude of teachability. But the answer to it is in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will. If you're double-minded and you have a weak will, you know, Esau had a weak will. Some of us have weak will, weak-willed people. Other people are too strong-willed, hard-headed. They need to have the right balance. The Apostle Paul was one with a strong will, but when he was converted, that strong will was used in harmony with God's will, and he became a very effective servant of Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So if you are weak-willed, Ask God to help you, as we read as one of the purposes of the fast, to be in the center of God's will. Ask God for a harmonious responsiveness to His will. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only, James said, James 2, I believe, in verse 20. For it is God who works in you. That's the wonderful promise, the Christian way of life that God gives us His Spirit that God works in us both to give us the will to do what's right and to do for his good pleasure. And then, of course, he says after that, do all things without murmurings and complainings. Philippians uh, 2, uh, well, right there, verse 5. Well, you know this whole section. Actually, you should read verse starting with verse 3, Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. I've shared with you before how some of our some ministers have defected from God's church because they had selfish ambition. They wanted to be promoted. They wanted to be top dog, so to speak. We have to have the humility, not selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem or value others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the agape love we heard about in the sermonette. This attitude of humility and service that Christ exemplified, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation or emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And he said, let this mind, this attitude, this characteristic be in you. 
Let's see that example of Jesus and his humility back in Matthew, the 11th chapter. I haven't even looked at my watch, so I'm just thinking of going another hour, but we'll cut it short. Matthew 11, verse 29. This describes Jesus' nature and his character and his relationship with us. Matthew 11. Verse 28, we begin, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, sometimes we just need to stop and cast our burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain us, it says in the Psalms. And then in First Peter 5, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you, tells us in First John 5. So Christ is willing to carry our burdens. God is willing to carry our burdens for us. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Yes, he is gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Of course, the yoke was put upon a beast of burden to, again, pull a plow or a cart or something of that nature. And he says it's light, it's easy, but it is a yoke, and he will give you rest. As it says, you shall find rest to your souls. Matthew, the 21st chapter, Matthew 21. He came in the form of a servant, we read in Philippians 2. Now in Matthew 21, They were on their way to uh, Jerusalem from Bethany, and they found the uh, donkey. Verse uh, 4 of Matthew 21, All this was done that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, not on a white horse this time, lowly. And sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the donkey. So again, Christ came as a lowly servant and set us an example. And of course, as we take the Passover and participate in the foot washing ceremony, we will understand that Jesus was willing to get down on his knees and wash the feet of his disciples, setting us an example. One of the purposes of our fasting today is to draw closer to God the Father and to our Savior and to realize that we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, but much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. One way to draw closer to God is to ask God to show us our sins. Now, that's not very easy to do. I won't turn there, but it says in Psalm 69:5, "O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you." Let's turn to uh, Psalm 139. I didn't have this in my notes, but I was reading it before coming to Sabbath services. Psalm 139 is a commentary on one of the three O's. That is, God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And Psalm 139 shows how he is omnipresent through his spirit. But the last two verses 
or should be part of our prayer during this pre-Passover time. Psalm 139, verse 23. David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We all want that. We all want to be in the way everlasting. But we need to open our eyes to any blind spots that we have that we can't see, that we are continually sinning in some way or other with a certain habit or thought or attitude. Sometimes it takes others to show us our faults and our sins. And, uh, you know, sometimes our response is, uh, no, but you don't understand. Sometimes we have to have patience and listen to someone's criticism or evaluation and at least consider it. Oh, Dr. Meredith is willing to listen to and read the criticisms that come in about the work or about him. Well, I'm going to read this anyway and see if there's any validity in it. And if there is, I need to make some changes. We need to consider those particular criticisms, perhaps. We need to consider our sins of commission and our sins of omission. As it says in James 4, verse 17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And I know there's some things that I've wanted to do and I should have done. I said, oh, I didn't do what I should have done. It was a sin of omission. In David's case, he was blinded to his sin. So the prophet Nathan had to help him. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So Nathan, the prophet, came to King David and he told him this story, Second Samuel 12, pages are stuck together here, and verse 1. Then the Eternal sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a city, in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives... The man who has done this shall surely die. He had a blind spot. He couldn't see his own sin. He had just pronounced the death penalty on himself. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the eternal God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had not been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. 
and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So what was David's reaction? So, well, you don't understand. No, he didn't come with any kind of excuses. Verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the eternal. Have you ever said that to God? That you have sinned? And Nathan said to David, The eternal has also put away your sin. You shall not die. And so we have Psalm 51 as David's psalm of repentance, and one that I suggested to you to read even today if, uh, before you break your fast. That leads us to repentance. We have to confess our sins and ask God to show us our sins of commission and our sins of omission. We need to have the humility to recognize our human nature. And some have had good lives, so to speak, uh, don't recognize their human nature. They don't know that they are or have vanity, jealousy, lust, greed, selfishness. Turn to Romans, the seventh chapter. Certainly one of the more dynamic men in Jerusalem was Saul. As I mentioned before, he had a strong will. But he repented. He actually got to the place in his life where he saw, as Jesus came to the road on the road to Damascus, and said, why are you persecuting me? And so he repented. But he still knew that he had that nature. Romans 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? O wretched man that I am. Why did he say that? Because he knew that downward pull that he'd been talking about in the previous previous verses, the law that was in him. When he wanted to do good, he didn't do it. And when he shouldn't have uh, done something wrong, he did. It was according to the inward man. And he saw that battle within him. And we'll talk more about that, of course, during the days of unleavened bread and replacing the nature of the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But how would you solve the problem of human nature? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Our former association was saying, well, if you want to understand the new covenant, just read Romans and Romans and Galatians, and you'll see that the law is done away with. Well, that's not what I read here. See, the Apostle Paul said, with my mind I myself serve the law of God. Second Corinthians, the seventh chapter, is one we can certainly consider as we fast and think about repenting and uh, asking ourselves, when was the last time I repented of anything? What is repentance? Well, repentance, of course, is acknowledging your sin, just as David did, that I have sinned against the Lord. It begins with an acknowledgement of sin, a recognition. And then also, as David said in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. Recognizing that the sin is against God, because God said, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not murder. So even though he harmed and killed Uriah, sinned against Bathsheba by committing adultery, 
He sinned against God because God, he transgressed the laws of God concerning murder and adultery. And so we have the fruits of godly sorrow here. The Apostle Paul wrote this very stinging and uh, indicting first epistle, very corrective. And he was afraid that he may have been too strong in that correction. But they were very responsive to that correction. So chapter 7, 2 Corinthians and verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For a godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Brethren, we're all on the track of salvation. If we have godly sorrow, if we have true repentance, if we have a teachable attitude, and we must commit to have a teachable and repentant attitude until the day we die, it leads to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so how many times I've seen it myself in the past. You know, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry for the embarrassment. Well, that's the sorrow of the world that works death. But godly sorrow, he writes in verse 11, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence, what did it produce? What fruits? Have you seen this in your repentance and in your godly sorrow? What diligence it produced in you. You're diligent to make sure you stay away from the temptation that captured you or led you to sin in the first place. You have a, whatever it was, smoking or drinking or drugs, you stay far away from it. Whether it's pornography on the Internet or uh, some other method, you stay away from it. You have diligence. You have brought fruit of your godly sorrow. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, you're even angry at sin. Because you understand the penalty of sin, that it harms not only you, it harms others. What vehement desire, a strong desire to do what's right, what zeal. And after this fast, of course, we need to have more zeal for God's work to complete the mission and the great commission that Christ has given us. What zeal, what vindication in all things you prove yourselves to be clear in this matter. So pray that you can have the fruits of godly sorrow. As we humble ourselves on this fast day, ask God to help you to maintain a teachable attitude and a repentant attitude. And as we do that, we know that we fast not to twist God's arm. We're fasting to humble ourselves to be closer to him. But with a humble attitude, then we can make our requests to God. He said, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened to you, and seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. He knows our needs before we ask, but he wants us to ask as a part of our close relationship with God the Father. Turn to Luke, the 11th chapter, Luke 11. So we can begin asking God fervently, as he tells us in James 5, that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And that's in the context of asking for healing for our brethren, our brothers and sisters. And one of the wonderful promises of God is given here in Luke, the 11th chapter, or it's following the outline pattern prayer. Earlier in the chapter, verse 9, 
So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If your son asks for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Quite a contrast. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, verse 13, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's a promise of God. And he says that we are to be renewing our minds daily by his Spirit. So be asking God for the Holy Spirit and asking God to heal his people, as we read in our church bulletin from the world ahead, February 12, 2013. Dr. Meredith wrote, Therefore, as a church, the body of Christ, let us cry out to our Father and ask Him to intervene more than ever to heal His own people, to apply the stripes of Jesus Christ to our bodies, and to make us well. As a family, we need to love one another, support one another, and pray together for all these things. Dr. Meredith writes, Please do cry out that God will deliver us from all these trials And more than ever, bless us with healings in our financial income and media production and in every other way that we may glorify his name. This coming day of fasting is certainly a powerful tool to make all of this possible. Let us draw truly close to God with all of our hearts and seek God at this time in a special way for his help and for his intervention. Thank you, dear brethren, for your help and your support. So we pray for one another. We ask God for his power to do the work, to do his will. You know, all know John 4.34. My food is to do the will of him that sent me, Jesus said, and to finish his work. It's what sustains us. Let's turn to Matthew 28, Matthew the 28th chapter. Again, God has not called the noble and mighty and strong of the world. He's called the weak of the world. But he's given us extra power and strength. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The King James has all power. But Christ has all authority in the universe. In fact, Hebrews 1 says he sustains the universe by the word of his power. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, which we're doing. And we had the Tomorrow's World presentation in Ethiopia here. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son. It should be baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, God the Father loves every one of us. Christ suffered for us and shed his blood for us. He's alive, and he's the head of this body, the body of Christ of which we are members. We're not all the head, not he is the head. We're not the eye or the, not all the ear or the elbow or foot or big toe, but we're all members of his body. And God has given us a mission as his church, as the body of Christ, to fulfill that commission, and he will empower us to do so. 
What should be the result of our fast? We should have examined ourselves, and as I said earlier, when you examine yourself, you realize you are weak. You have areas of life to overcome. You need more of God's nature, more of the very nature of Christ, his characteristics and his love and the fruits of God's Spirit. After you've examined yourselves, you'll have a more realistic understanding of our human nature and our strengths and our weaknesses. And when we come to the Passover, we can do it in a positive way as well. Thank God for all the blessings he's given us in the previous year. They can be a part of our thanksgiving at the Passover. But we will also recognize more deeply our need for Christ's shed blood, which we accepted at baptism. And as we practice the agape love, we heard in the sermonette, God's way of righteousness, his way of giving. And as we maintain a humble and a teachable attitude and a repentant attitude, God continually cleanses us from all sin. As I referred to earlier, 1 John 1, verse 7. So let's look forward to the Passover. Let's look forward to the days of unleavened bread. Turn to Micah, the sixth chapter. Micah, the sixth chapter. There's four weeks from tomorrow night will be the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. And, of course, we need to start. Uh, I know some of the women are already thinking about deleavening their homes and as a part of that preparation, I hope that you read the current Living Church News, which gives very good articles in Passover and festival preparation. Uh, Dr. Meredith's uh, lead article is Our Council of Elders, Its Purpose and Activity. I hope you're praying for the Council of Elders. I hope you're praying for one another. I hope you're praying for the ministers, deacons, and deaconesses, on the back of your church bulletin is a list of all the elders here in the area and deacons and deaconesses. I hope you're praying for them. The Living Church News, March, April 2013, has my editorial on Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive riches and honor and glory and power and wisdom. And he shed his blood for us. Then Dexter Wakefield has an article on foot washing. It's very helpful. We need to have that foot washing attitude. How and when, how and why we deleaven by Mr. Dan Hall. And I know some of you will be traveling, so you're already thinking about deleavening your homes and your cars. Psalm 51, From Sin to Forgiveness After Conversion by Mr. Wyatt Seselka. Understanding the Night to Be Much Observed by Mr. John O'Gwen. So I hope that you'll be reading those. Mr. Weston has an article, Memory, Faith, and Belief. And then, of course, the Living Youth Camp, 2013, December to Remember. But I hope, brethren, that you'll be reading uh, the Living Church News in preparation for Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, in the commentary by Mr. Crockett on the back page, 72 Hours. So, brethren, we can look forward with great blessings after our fast. As Dr. Meredith wrote in his Holy Day Offering envelopes, we got those this past week. It was written uh, February 14th. He wrote in that letter, and I hope most of you did receive. How many of you have received the green Holy Day envelopes? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. Most of you have. 
Dr. Meredith wrote in the accompanying letter, February 14, 2013, quote, The world desperately needs the message that we can give in a special way. We are doing the work with all our hearts, as most of you know. So, brethren, we can look forward to the great blessings that God gives us through our Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's look forward to the Passover as we commemorate the death of our Savior and always remember that we are being saved by his life. That's Romans 5 and verse 10. Micah, I'm sorry, I'm in Malachi. I need to turn to Micah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah, the sixth chapter. So as we humble ourselves before God, we can look forward to God's powerful guidance. We can look forward to his blessings on the church and his blessings on the work in the days and weeks, months and years ahead. If we all do our part as we humble ourselves and continue to do what he tells us in Micah 6 and verse 8. Micah 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.